Section 12 of the Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bryce Youngstown. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Chapter 4, Part 3. They went on in this way for some time, always coming together, but rarely touching. Very seldom did they kiss. And then, often, it was merely a touch of the lips, a sign. But her eyes began to waken with a constant fire. She paused often in the midst of her transit, as if to recollect something or to discover something. And his face became somber, intent. He did not really hear what was said to him. One evening in August he came when it was raining. He came in with his jacket collar turned up, his jacket buttoned close, his face wet, and he looked so slim and definite, coming out of the chill rain, she was suddenly blinded with love for him. Yet he sat and talked with her father and mother, meaninglessly, whilst her blood seethed to anguish in her. She wanted to touch him now, only to touch him. There was a queer, abstract look on her silvery, radiant face that maddened her father. Her dark eyes were hidden, but she raised them to the youth, and they were dark with a flare that made him quail for a moment. She went into the second kitchen and took a lantern. Her father watched her as she returned. "'Come with me, Will,' she said to her cousin. "'I want to see if I put the brick over where that rat comes in.' "'You've no need to do that,' retorted her father." She took no notice. The youth was between the two wills. The color mounted into the father's face. His blue eyes stared. The girl stood near the door, her head held slightly back, like an indication that the youth must come. He rose in his silent, intent way and was gone with her. The blood swelled in Brangwen's forehead veins. It was raining. The light of the lantern flashed on the cobbled path and the bottom of the wall. She came to a small ladder and climbed up. He reached her the lantern and followed. Up there in the fowl loft, the birds sat in fat bunches on the perches, the red comb shining like fire. Bright, sharp eyes opened. There was a sharp crack of expostulation as one of the hens shifted over. The cock sat watching, his yellow neck feathers bright as glass. Anna went across the dirty floor. Brangwen crouched in the loft watching. The light was soft under the red, naked tiles. The girl crouched in a corner. There was another explosive bustle of a hen springing from her perch. Anna came back, stooping under the perches. He was waiting for her near the door. Suddenly she had her arms round him, was clinging close to him, cleaving her body against his, and crying in a whispering, whimpering sound. Will, I love you. I love you, Will. I love you. It sounded as if it were tearing her. He was not even very much surprised. He held her in his arms and his bones melted. He leaned back against the wall. The door of the loft was open. Outside the rain slanted by in fine, steely, mysterious haste, emerging out of the gulf of darkness. He held her in his arms, and he and she together seemed to be swinging in big, swooping oscillations, the two of them clasped together up in the darkness. Outside the open door of the loft in which they stood, beyond them and below them was darkness, with a traveling veil of rain. I love you, Will. I love you, she moaned. 
I love you, Will. He held her as though they were one and was silent. In the house, Tom Brangwen waited a while. Then he got up and went out. He went down the yard. He saw the curious misty shaft coming out of the loft door. He scarcely knew it was a light in the rain. He went on till the illumination fell on him dimly. Then looking up through the blur, he saw the youth and the girl together, the youth with his back against the wall, his head sunk over the head of the girl. The elder man saw them, blurred through the rain, but lit up. They thought themselves so buried in the night. He even saw the lighted dryness of the loft behind, the shadows and bunches of roosting fowls up in the night, strange shadows cast from the lantern on the floor. And a black loom of anger and a tenderness of self-effacement fought in his heart. She did not understand what she was doing. She betrayed herself. She was a child, a mere child. She did not know how much of herself she was squandering. And he was blackly and furiously miserable. Was he then an old man that he should be giving her away in marriage? Was he old? He was not old. He was younger than that young thoughtless fellow in whose arms she lay. Who knew her, he or that blind-headed youth? To whom did she belong, if not to himself? He thought again of the child he had carried out at night into the barn, whilst his wife was in labor with the young Tom. He remembered the soft, warm weight of the little girl on his arm round his neck. Now she would say he was finished. She was going away to deny him, to leave an unendurable emptiness in him, a void that he could not bear. Almost he hated her. How dared she say he was old? He walked on in the rain, sweating with pain, with the horror of being old, with the agony of having to relinquish what was life to him. Will Brangwen went home without having seen his uncle. He held his hot face to the rain and walked on in a trance. I love you, Will, I love you. The words repeated themselves endlessly. The veils had ripped and issued him naked into the endless space, and he shuddered. The walls had thrust him out and given him a vast space to walk in. Whither, through this darkness of infinite space, was he walking blindly? Where, at the end of all the darkness, was God the Almighty, still darkly seated, thrusting him on? I love you, Will, I love you. He trembled with fear as the words beat in his heart again, and he dared not think of her face, of her eyes which shone, and of her strange, transfigured face. The hand of the hidden Almighty, burning bright, had thrust out of the darkness and gripped him. He went on subject and in fear, his heart gripped and burning from the touch. The days went by, they ran on dark padded feet in silence. He went to see Anna, but again there had come a reserve between them. Tom Brangwen was gloomy, his blue eyes somber. Anna was strange and delivered up. Her face in its delicate coloring was mute, touched dumb and poignant. The mother bowed her head and moved in her own dark world that was pregnant again with fulfillment. Will Brangwen worked at his wood carving. It was a passion, a passion for him to have the chisel under his grip. Verily, the passion of his heart lifted the fine bite of steel. He was carving, as he had always wanted, the creation of Eve. It was a panel in low relief for a church. Adam lay asleep as if suffering, and God, a dim, large figure, stooped towards him, stretching forward his unveiled hand, 
and Eve, a small, vivid, naked female shape, was issuing like a flame towards the hand of God from the torn side of Adam. Now Will Brangman was working at the Eve. She was thin, a keen, unripe thing. With trembling passion, fine as a breath of air, he sent a chisel over her belly, her hard, unripe, small belly. She was a stiff little figure with sharp lines in the throes and torture and ecstasy of her creation. But he trembled as he touched her. He had not finished any of his figures. There was a bird on a bough overhead, lifting its wings for flight, and a serpent breathing up to it. It was not finished yet. He trembled with passion, at last able to create the new sharp body of his Eve. At the sides, at the far sides, at either end, were two angels covering their faces with their wings. They were like trees. As he went to the marsh in the twilight, he felt that the angels, with covered faces, were standing back as he went by. The darkness was of their shadows and the covering of their faces. When he went through the canal bridge, the evening glowed in its last deep colors. The sky was dark blue, the stars glittered from afar, very remote, and approaching above the darkening cluster of the farm, above the paths of crystal along the edge of the heavens. She waited for him like the glow of light, and as if his face were covered, and he dared not lift his face to look at her. Corn harvest came on. One evening they walked out through the farm buildings at nightfall. A large gold moon hung heavily to the gray horizon, trees hovering tall, standing back in the dusk, waiting. Anna and the young man went on noiselessly by the hedge, along where the farm carts had made dark ruts in the grass. They came through a gate into a wide open field, where still much light seemed to spread against their faces. In the undershadow, the sheaves lay on the ground where the reapers had left them, many sheaves like bodies prostrate in shadowy bulk. Others were riding hazily in shocks, like ships in the haze of moonlight and of dusk farther off. They did not want to turn back, yet whither were they to go towards the moon? For they were separate, single. We will put up some sheaves, said Anna, so they could remain there in the broad open place. They went across the stubble to where the long rows of upreared shocks ended. Curiously populous that part of the field looked, where the shocks rode erect, the rest was open and prostrate. The air was all hoary silver. She looked around her. Trees stood vaguely at their distance, as if waiting like heralds for the signal to approach. In this space of vague crystal her heart seemed like a bell ringing. She was afraid lest the sound should be heard. You take this row, she said to the youth, and passing on, she stopped in the next row of lying sheaves. Grasping her hands in the tresses of the oats, lifting the heavy corn in either hand, carrying it as it hung heavily against her to the cleared space, where she set the two sheaves sharply down, bringing them together with a faint, keen clash. Her two bulks stood leaning together. He was coming, walking shadowly with a gossamer dusk, carrying his two sheaves. She waited nearby. He set his sheaves with a keen, faint clash next to her sheaves. They rode unsteadily. He tangled the tresses of corn. It hissed like a fountain. He looked up and laughed. Then she turned away towards the moon, which seemed glowingly to uncover her bosom every time she faced it. She went to the vague emptiness of the field opposite, dutifully. 
They stooped, grasped the wet, soft hair of the corn, lifted the heavy bundles, and returned. She was always first. She set down her sheaves, making a penthouse with those others. He was coming shadowy across the stubble, carrying his bundles. She turned away, hearing only the sharp hiss of his mingling corn. She walked between the moon and his shadowy figure. She took her two new sheaves and walked towards him as he rose from stooping over the earth. He was coming out of the near distance. She set down her sheaves to make a new stook. They were unsure. Her hands fluttered. Yet she broke away and turned to the moon, which laid bare to her bosom, so she felt as if her bosom were heaving and panting with moonlight, and he had to put up her two sheaves which had fallen down. He worked in silence. The rhythm of the work carried him away again, and she was coming near. They worked together, coming and going, in a rhythm which carried their feet and their bodies in tune. She stooped, she lifted the burden of sheaves, she turned her face to the dimness where he was, and went with her burden over the stubble. She hesitated, set down her sheaves, there was a swish and hiss of mingling oats, he was drawing near, and she must turn again. And there was the flaring moon laying bare her bosom again, making her drift and ebb like a wave. He worked steadily, engrossed, threading backwards and forwards like a shuttle across a strip of cleared stubble, weaving the long lines of riding shocks nearer and nearer to the shadowy trees, threading his sheaves with hers. And always she was gone before he came. As he came, she drew away. As he drew away, she came. Were they never to meet? Gradually, a low, deep-sounding will in him vibrated to her, tried to set her in accord, tried to bring her gradually to him, to a meeting, till they should be together, till they should meet as the sheaves that swished together. And the work went on. The moon grew brighter, clearer. The corn glistened. He bent over the prostrate bundles. There was a hiss as the sheaves left the ground, a trailing of heavy bodies against him, a dazzle of moonlight on his eyes. And then he was setting the corn together at the stook, and she was coming near. He waited for her. He fumbled at the stook. She came, but she stood back till he drew away. He saw her in shadow, a dark column, and spoke to her, and she answered. She saw the moonlight flash question on his face, but there was a space between them and he went away, the work carried them, rhythmic. Why was there always a space between them? Why were they apart? Why, as she came up from under the moon, would she halt and stand off from him? Why was he held away from her? His will drummed persistently, darkly, it drowned everything else. Into the rhythm of his work there came a pulse and a steadied purpose. He stooped, he lifted the weight, he heaved it towards her, setting it as in her, under the moonlit space. And he went back for more. Ever with increasing closeness, he lifted the sheaves and swung striding to the center with them. Ever he drove her more nearly to the meeting. Ever he did his share and drew towards her, overtaking her. There was only the moving to and fro in the moonlight, engrossed, the swinging in the silence that was marked only by the splash of sheaves and silence and a splash of sheaves. And ever the splash of his sheaves broke swifter, beating up to hers, and ever the splash of her sheaves recurred monotonously, unchanging, and ever the splash of his sheaves beat nearer. 
till at last they met at the shock, facing each other, sheaves in hand. And he was silvery with moonlight, with a moonlit shadowy face that frightened her. She waited for him. Put yours down, she said. No, it's your turn. His voice was twanging and insistent. She set her sheaves against the shock. He saw her hands glisten among the spray of grain. And he dropped his sheaves, and he trembled as he took her in his arms. He had overtaken her, and it was his privilege to kiss her. She was sweet and fresh with the night air, and sweet with the scent of grain. And the whole rhythm of him beat into his kisses. And still he pursued her in his kisses, and still she was not quite overcome. He wandered over the moonlight on her nose, all the moonlight upon her, all the darkness within her. All the night in his arms, darkness and shine, he possessed of it all. All the night for him now, to unfold, to venture within, all the mystery to be entered, all the discovery to be made. Trembling with keen triumph, his heart was white as a star as he drove his kisses nearer. My love, she called in a low voice from afar. The low sound seemed to call him from far off, under the moon, to him who was unaware. He stopped, quivered, and listened. My love, came again the low, plaintive call, like a bird unseen in the night. He was afraid. His heart quivered and broke. He was stopped. Anna, he said, as if he answered her from a distance, unsure. My love, and he drew near, and she drew near. Anna, he said, in wonder and the birth pain of love. My love, she said, her voice growing rapturous, and they kissed on the mouth in rapture and surprise, long, real kisses. The kiss lasted there among the moonlight. He kissed her again, and she kissed him, and again they were kissing together. Till something happened in him, he was strange. He wanted her, he wanted her exceedingly. She was something new. They stood there folded, suspended in the night, and his whole being quivered with surprise as from a blow. He wanted her, and he wanted to tell her so, but the shock was too great to him. He had never realized before. He trembled with irritation and unusedness. He did not know what to do. He held her more gently, gently, much more gently. The conflict was gone by, and he was glad and breathless and almost in tears. But he knew he wanted her, something fixed in him forever. He was hers, and he was very glad and afraid. He did not know what to do as they stood there in the open, moonlit field. He looked through her hair at the moon, which seemed to swim liquid bright. She sighed and seemed to wake up, then she kissed him again, and she loosened herself away from him and took his hand. It hurt him when she drew away from his breast. It hurt him with a chagrin. Why did she draw away from him? But she held his hand. I want to go home, she said, looking at him in a way he could not understand. He held close to her hand. He was dazed and he could not move. He did not know how to move. She drew him away. He walked helplessly beside her, holding her hand. She went with bent head. Suddenly, he said, as the simple solution stated itself to him, We'll get married, Anna. She was silent. We'll get married, Anna, shall we? She stopped in the field again and kissed him, clinging to him passionately in a way he could not understand. He could not understand. But he left it all now to marriage. That was the solution now, fixed ahead. 
He wanted her. He wanted to be married to her. He wanted to have her altogether as his own forever. And he waited intent for the accomplishment. But there was all the while a slight tension of irritation. He spoke to his uncle and aunt that night. Uncle, he said, Anna and me think of getting married. Oh, eh, said Brangwen. But how? You have no money, said the mother. The youth went pale. He hated these words. But he was like a gleaming bright pebble, something bright and inalterable. He did not think. He sat there in his hard brightness and did not speak. Have you mentioned it to your own mother? asked Brangwen. No, I'll tell her on Saturday. You'll go and see her? Yes. There was a long pause. And what are you going to marry on? Your pound a week? Again the youth went pale, as if the spirit were being injured in him. I don't know, he said, looking at his uncle with his bright, inhuman eyes like a hawk's. Brangwen stirred in hatred. It needs knowing, he said. I shall have the money later on, said the nephew. I will raise some now and pay it back then. Oh, eh, and why this desperate hurry? She's a child of eighteen, and you're a boy of twenty. You're neither of you of age to do as you like yet. Will Brangwen ducked his head and looked at his uncle with swift, mistrustful eyes like a caged hawk. What does it matter how old she is and how old I am, he said. What's the difference between me now and when I'm thirty? A big difference, let us hope. But you have no experience. You have no experience and no money. Why do you want to marry without experience or money, asked the aunt. What experience do I want, aunt, asked the boy. And if Brangwen's heart had not been hard and intact with anger, like a precious stone, he would have agreed. Will Brangwen went home strange and untouched. He felt he could not alter from what he was fixed upon. His will was set. To alter it, he must be destroyed, and he would not be destroyed. He had no money, but he would get some from somewhere. It did not matter. He lay awake for many hours, hard and clear and unthinking, his soul crystallizing more inalterably. Then he went fast asleep. It was as if his soul had turned into a hard crystal. He might tremble and quiver and suffer. It did not alter. The next morning, Tom Brangwen, inhuman with anger, spoke to Anna. What's this about wanting to get married, he said. She stood, paling a little, her dark eyes springing to the hostile, startled look of a savage thing that will defend itself, but trembles with sensitiveness. I do, she said, out of her unconsciousness. His anger rose, and he would have liked to break her. You do, you do, and what for, he sneered with contempt. The old childish agony, the blindness that could recognize nobody, the palpitating antagonism as of a raw, helpless, undefended thing came back on her. I do because I do, she cried in the shrill hysterical way of her childhood. You are not my father. My father is dead. You are not my father. She was still a stranger. She did not recognize him. The cold blade cut down deep into Brangwen's soul. It cut him off from her. And what if I'm not, he said. But he could not bear it. It had been so passionately dear to him, her father, daddy. He went about for some days as if stunned. His wife was bemused. She did not understand. She only thought the marriage was impeded for want of money and position. There was a horrible silence in the house. Anna kept out of sight as much as possible. 
She could be for hours alone. End of section 12. Recording by Bryce, Youngstown.